0: Well, thank you, church, for that warm welcome earlier. It is a privilege for me to be able to be here with you, and uh, the main reason I'm excited to be here is just to have the opportunity to say thank you. Uh, As your pastor was talking about uh, the IMB and the church's support of the IMB, it's not lost on me that I have the privilege today of being in uh, not only one of our best partnering churches in the state of Louisiana, but literally across the 50,000 churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, you're right there at the top. Uh, Your giving uh, is an incredible blessing. Very few churches are as generous as your church is to support uh, our more than 3,500 missionaries and uh, 2,700 kids who are part of those missionary families who served last year in more than 120 countries of the world. Uh, Your prayers for them. Uh, Those of you who have taken mission trips and worked alongside of them or you're planning to do that, uh, every investment that this church makes is such an incredible blessing and I want to say thank you for it. Pastor James, thank you for your leadership. Uh, I know that that has a lot to do uh, with uh, the direction of a church and what the church invests itself in. Uh, I've known your pastor for several years. I actually uh, got to know him through his father. His father was A very dear friend to me and uh, such a blessing in many ways in my life. And to be able to uh, always uh, catch up on what was going on with Brother James uh, through his dad uh, is something that that I miss. But I'm so thankful uh, that the Lord has uh, led him and Kim here uh, to serve with you and to serve you. Uh, Aren't you thankful today that the Lord has a good pastor leading your church? Amen. I've spent the last, I don't know, 12 or 15 years uh, preaching at a different church almost every Sunday uh, somewhere across uh, the country, uh, and to be uh, in a church where uh, I hear the pastor all morning bragging on the church is every conversation he and I have had. He's, he's taken the opportunity to do that, and, and to know that uh, the Lord is using you together is such a tremendous blessing uh, to me, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, this morning, I want to focus to be uh, on the work that we're doing together. So let, let, me, let me tell you, I've, I've given you the number of countries that the IMB worked in last year. Let me add a couple of things to that just with regard to the impact that you're making as a church through the IMB. In those 120 countries where we worked, we had the opportunity to share the gospel last year with more than half a million people. Of those who heard the gospel, there was 178,000 who believed it and who came to faith. And of those 178,000 new believers, 102,000 followed through with believers' baptism. And there was actually last year, 21,000 new churches started around the world. So it's an incredible work that we're all a part of, and, and uh, the, the scope of that, the magnitude of that work, is only possible because churches like yours across uh, the convention. Uh, have dedicated themselves to it and are committed to working together. There's opportunities for you, uh, as I mentioned, You know, praying, giving, going on volunteer trips, but the IMB is growing again in terms of sending missionaries. And so if you're a student looking for somewhere to spend a semester or a summer, uh, you could serve on one of our IMB teams uh, overseas, Mike Lazenby. uh, One of our team members is in the fellowship hall uh, after the service this morning. He can talk to you about what that would look like young people under the age of 30, married or single, no kids yet. Uh, you can serve two years through a journeyman program, fully funded by the generosity of churches uh, like First Baptist. We're sending career missionaries all over the world today. And, and uh, if someone uh, senses the Lord calling you uh, to explore that or to do that, we'd love to talk with you about that. We're sending retirees. Uh, if the Lord has put on your heart using some of your retirement years to make an eternal difference for Him. We'd love to talk with you. It doesn't really matter what your uh, line of work has been. Maybe you're a retired doctor or nurse or school teacher, IT technician, police officer. Listen, we can even use retired attorneys at the IMB. So whatever your work has been, we'll find a way to use it somewhere around the world. So please uh, connect with us if the Lord has placed uh, any leading in your life at all with regard to getting the gospel to the nations. And, and turning our attention to that today. Uh, and really focusing in on why what we're doing together is so important, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Romans 3. While you're turning there, we'll be reading verses 9 through 18, or you're clicking your device on, or whatever that looks like, or you can just, in a few moments, probably turn your attention to the screen. Uh, I I want to give you a a bit of the context for this passage. Uh, Of course, the Apostle Paul uh, was the one who penned Romans. It's God's Word to us. God gave him the words uh, to write. Uh, but as, as Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, was writing, there's a lot, of, a lot of things he deals with uh, in the book of Romans. It's a very rich and deep book, and Paul gives great clarity to the gospel and to the role of the church and the history of God at work. But one of the things that Paul addresses here, as well as in other uh, of his letters, uh, is, is a very personal matter for him. Paul was a Jew, an Israelite. One of the things that Paul will address is is the the state of his own people, the Jews. Uh, One of the questions that he wrestles with is in light of the fact that most of the Jews had rejected Jesus as the Savior, and yet the Old Testament is packed full of promises that God makes to the Israelites, to his covenant people, but with this rejecting Jesus, what becomes of all those promises? Will those promises still be kept? And ultimately, Paul will conclude, yes, because God keeps every promise that God has ever made. God's not a liar. God does what God says he'll do. But Paul will also make clear, and this really brings us here to Romans 3, this fact. Regardless of what God has promised to do through the Israelites or any other people, that gives uh, no cover, if you will, for any person's responsibility for their own sin and shortcomings and for what they do with Jesus. And so it's, it's, that that Paul's focusing in on here and, and states just so clearly in Romans 3. Picking up in verse 9, he asks, what then are we any better off? Of course, he's talking about the Jews. Are, are, are the Jews any better off? Because they're God's covenant people and he's made all these promises to us. And he says, not at all. for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that is everybody else who's not a Jew, are all under sin. As it is written, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of
1: peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes.
0: Wow! I mean, could you say it more clearly, Paul? <laughs> time and time again, he 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 hammers home the point. No, no, the the Jews aren't any better off because they're a covenant people when it comes to responsibility for their own sin, and and and, and they're really not in a different boat than anyone else. And we're all in the same boat. And what is the boat? Our relationship with God is broken. And as Paul makes this point over and over and over again, what he really is pointing to is, is the greatest problem in the world in his day. And it's the greatest problem in the world in our day. Now, what if I were to ask you this morning, could you list off the top five biggest problems in the world? Uh, Probably lots of things, situations, problems would begin to flood your mind. Uh, it doesn't take me long, to just read the news, the daily headlines, what's going on in the world before I'm almost clinically depressed as I think about all the problems in our world. The war in Ukraine lingers on. The United States is very involved in that. A war now in the Middle East. The United States is very involved in that. Did you know that there is a hunger crisis facing our world today, unlike has been seen in four decades? A lot of it is associated with war in countries like Ukraine, a breadbasket country, not just for Europe, but for Africa. We're told as many as two billion people in the world today will struggle to have a single meal to eat, and more than 300 million are on the verge of starving to death today. Are you aware of the fact that there are more displaced peoples on the planet today than any time in human history? More than 100 million people because of wars and, and, and genocide and famine, and more than 100 million people have fled from their homes, most of them their home countries, half of them being children. I mean, those numbers are mind-boggling. I mean, you even get your head around 100 million people. Are you aware of the fact that there are more slaves in our world today than at any time in human history? More than 50 million people live as forced laborers, modern day slaves. I mean, these these problems are overwhelming, even to think about, aren't they? And yet none of those is the problem Paul was addressing in his day, that he considered to be the greatest problem in the world, that's even a bigger problem today, and, and none of those problems even begin to rival that problem. What is that problem? Well, in a word, the problem is lostness. It's, it's the broken relationship between human beings and the God who created us because of our sin, our wrongdoing. Now, why would I, why would I say, in light of the fact that people are literally starving to death, uh, living as as slaves, fleeing bullets and bombs for their very survival? Why would I say that a spiritual condition is the greatest problem in the world?
1: There's actually a long list of reasons, but but I want to highlight two for you. And the first is this:
0: spiritual law since is the world's greatest problem because it's the only problem that lasts. It's an eternal problem. Do you know every problem in your life essentially ends the moment you die? Think about it. Uh, whether or not the saints you know, get back to the playoffs, <laughs> you won't care when you die. Any Dallas fans? Oh man, <laughs> another disappointing year, eh? Uh, you won't be worried about next year once you're dead. Uh, what about those LSU tigers, the raging cage. What what what, let's, what what about that back pain?
1: <laughs> it's gone. The moment you die. Debt problems, money problems, family problems, problems with the kids. All the problems are gone. Except one. If you die lost. The magnitude of that problem will only set in the moment you die.
0: What does that look like? Well, the Bible helps us understand what that looks like.
1: The Bible says of God, God is love. What would it be like to spend eternity with no love? No one loving you, no one to love, no love. Well, that is... The hatred that is hell. The Bible says the Holy Spirit,
0: God's Spirit, is our comforter. What would it be like to spend forever with no comfort and no source of comfort? Well, that's the suffering and the agony that the Bible describes as hell. The Bible says Christ is our joy. What would it be like to never laugh again, to have no joy?
1: That's the sorrow and the grieving that lasts forever in hell. The Bible says Jesus is your life. What would it be
0: like to forever be separated from life, the one who is the source of life?
1: The Bible calls hell the place of eternal dying, eternal death. Every problem in life ends the moment you die, but one and die
0: lost, that problem lasts forever. And that's why it's the greatest problem in the world. But there's another reason. This is what Paul really focuses in on here in Romans 3. And it is because it's everyone's problem. It's a universal problem. No one is excluded from having this problem. It includes us all. In fact, no less than, than nine times Paul states that and restates it and restates it in the verses that we've read. Let me highlight those instances. In verse 9, he says, are we the Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. Verse 10, it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Verse 12, all have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. If someone were to hear Paul make those statements repeatedly uh, then or now and think to themselves, well, no, that's a lot of people's problem. That's not my problem. Paul's going to use an illustration to to sort of seal the deal, if you will. It's the same illustration that James uses in James chapter 3, where James, in essence, says, you know, we, 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 we... all fallen short, and for evidence of that, just consider your tongue. Just think about the words uh, you say. And, and, and Paul does the same thing here. If he were with us today, he might say, oh, you don't, you, when I talk about a broken relationship with God, when I talk about sin, the fact you've done wrong, you've offended God, you don't think that's you. And Paul might suggest to us, if he were with us today, why don't you record yourself talking for a little while and play it back? And then you'll know you, too. It's an interesting article I ran across uh, a few months ago, uh, article by a fellow by the name of Jonathan Haight H-A-I-D-T. H-A-I-D-T. Uh, I was fascinated by the title of the article. I thought, I need to read that article. Uh, the article was entitled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. <laughs> I need to see what that guy has to say. Well, as I began to read the article, I was fascinated by the fact that it's not a preacher, it wasn't necessarily a religious article, but, but the guy begins to use a Bible illustration to make a point that he's trying to make about American life and about social media. And the illustration he uses from the Old Testament, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you, you, remember, you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Uh, the people of the earth came together, uh, wanting to make a name for themselves so they decided they'd do that through a building project. And what they decided they would build is a tower. And they were going to build a tower so high that it would reach to heavens, a tower that would reach to God. But if you remember uh, how that turned out, it didn't turn out at all the way they had planned. Because this building project that had brought them together ultimately drove them apart, so much so that God even confused their languages. They couldn't even communicate with one another. Well, the author of this article I read Use that as an illustration to say, that's social media. It was supposed to bring us together. We call them Facebook friends, right? But what an unfriendly place Facebook can be.
1: What was supposed to bring us together, he said, has driven us apart. I was disappointed when I came to the article, the end of the article. Because he, he never made the real point.
0: Because the real point is, is not a point to be made about social media. Social media isn't the problem. It doesn't matter the, you know, the platform, X, or Facebook, or TikTok, whatever. It doesn't matter the size of the screen. You're working from your phone or your iPad or your laptop. But no, no, the, the, that's, that's not the problem. The problem is here. <laughs> It's a problem of the heart, the sinfulness of our hearts. The words that we speak or type or post, they simply reveal the condition of our heart. Jesus made that point to the Pharisees. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus is about to make that point, but first he does a little name calling. He says in Matthew 12, 34, brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Now it's fascinating here in Romans 3 that, that Paul uses the same imagery that Jesus used when he's talking to Pharisees. and says, you bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers. Uh, Paul says in verse 13... Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers
1: venom is under their lips. Using the snake and the bite of the snake
0: to make a point about our words.
1: That's really a point about our hearts and our lives. You want to have a good snake story?
0: Surely in this part of the country, you've got you've got a snake story. I, I grew up in the mountains. I've got lots of snake stories. Uh, but, but my favorite one comes from my teenage years. Uh, I'd heard like eighth grade, I heard about a camp experience, summer camp experience that had me very interested. I thought, I want to go do that this summer. Uh, it was a conservation camp. I grew up over in Southeastern Kentucky, East Tennessee. Conservation camp was hosted by the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, and University of Tennessee, but it was way out in West Tennessee, just off the Mississippi River is where the camp was held. Uh, But I was interested in it, not for that reason. I was interested in it because I heard at conservation camp, you get to dissect a beaver. Mind of a teenage boy. I don't know. I thought that would be great. What I did not know is the beaver would end up being frozen and have to be thawed out, and they'd do that in the bathtub in my cabin. But but they thawed the the beaver out in our bathtub, and we dissected the beaver. It was a good time. But another thing I'd heard about conservation camp that had me interested is you get to have rattlesnake for supper at conservation camp. I'd never eaten rattlesnakes, so I thought that'd be good. But there were two things that made conservation camp like legendary. One was called the Snake Roundup. And the other was the Snake Bike Club. Now, the way the Snake Roundup worked, I'd ridden a school bus from the mountains out in the east all the way over to the west, nine hours on a school bus. I do not recommend it. Uh, But after nine hours on a school bus, uh, there was a, a night that came at camp when we all got back on the school buses and they drove us out uh, to a swampy area just off Mississippi River and they put us out and we spent the night catching snakes. They called it the snake roundup. Now, can you imagine how that'd go today? You wouldn't as much as, as get the kids on the bus. Somebody file a lawsuit. They shut that operation down. But, but I'm here to tell you, you talking about the good old days? I'm here to tell you, in 1983, you could literally load a school bus full of kids, dump them in a swamp, and tell them to catch snakes all night and get away with it. And that's exactly what we did. We had a great time. But it was the next day when the moment we had all been waiting for took place because this is when they took some of the non-venomous, the non-poison snakes that we caught the night before, and they put them in a pillowcase. And one of the camp counselors, he carried that pillowcase all around the camp. And any student there who voluntarily chose to had the opportunity to join the snake bite club. It's a very simple process. Put your hand in the pillowcase, you're inducted. (laughs) But, but, But the problem is when for me was by the time they got down to my cabin, uh, where we thought to be out in the bathtubs all the way down at the end of the royal cabins. And, and the snakes, apparently, they were tired of biting. Because I mustered up the courage or the idiocy, depending on your opinion. And, and I, I put my hand down that pillowcase, but nothing happened. And so I looked at the counselor. I said, nothing's happening. What do I do? He said, well, pull one out. And so I fish around for a moment. I finally get a hold of one. I pull it out. And it hangs there in my hand about as disinterested in me as my teenage daughter. (laughs) Nothing's happening, you know. And so uh, I said, what do I do now? He said, well, slap him. (laughs) Now, in case you didn't know, (laughs) snakes don't like to be slapped. (laughs) Because when I slapped that snake, that snake slapped me back. (laughs) It was a toothy slap right on the back of my hand. And that's the day I joined the snake bite club. That's a true story, but I need to make two quick disqualifiers. First, that was not church (laughs) camp. I'm from the mountains. We had those churches in our community. I'm not that kind of Baptist. (laughs) This was conservation camp. But the other thing you need to know
1: is I was actually already a member of the club. In fact, I was born a member of the snakebite club. What do you mean? You know, the Bible's filled with stories of snakes and serpents and references,
0: even like we've seen here in the words of Jesus, the words of Paul. But the first is the most significant. It's all the way back at the beginning. The book of Genesis, you remember that one, don't you? Where the serpent slithers into the garden to
1: tempt the woman and the man to do what God had explicitly told them not to do. And they did it. That's called sin. And from that moment, the world changed. When sin entered the world, the world changed. We call it the fall. What did that look like? God, because of sin, cursed the world. And he cursed the serpent.
0: And he cursed the man, and he cursed the woman. It was the consequence. But but not just Adam and Eve. Read Genesis 3, and you'll see every generation that was to come would bear the curse of Adam. And it's been true. You see it in the very next generation as
1: Adam and Eve's son kills their other son. Lostness. Consequence of sin, a broken relationship with God. It entered the world at the moment
0: that sin entered the world. And it was the greatest problem in the world from that moment until this moment. There's no greater problem. How great is that? It's a a bigger problem today than it's ever been. Well, why would I say that? Well, A research team at the IMB gives me an updated figure each year. They derive this figure from three sets of data. One is, is, is population growth. Did, you, you didn't miss the headline. The, the world last year passed 8 billion in population. More people on the planet than ever in history. And more of them are lost. What does that look like? Well, the, they take that data, the population growth, along with the daily death rate. On average, each country reports how many people on average die every day in their country. And from that, we get a global death rate. And there's another set of data that they factor in, and it is what do people claim to believe? What is their religion? Who do they follow? And from those three sets of data, what they're able to tell me is the number of people who, on average, die every day around the world, having given no indication that they have heard the gospel or if they have heard it, that they believed it, that they're a follower of Jesus. They've been born again, they've been saved, and they're going to heaven. That number from last year to this year took its largest jump in human history.
1: And it is the case that today, 173,451
0: people will die. They'll enter eternity having given no indication that they've heard the gospel or if they've heard it, that they believed it, that they've been saved. And that number will be repeated tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And the number, in fact, grows every day. We just update it once a year, but it grows every day. 173,451 people die lost every
1: day. There's no greater problem in the world than that problem. If you were to ask me why First Baptist Church exists, I'd tell you this. You exist to address the world's greatest problem. That's why you're here. Because you know the solution.
0: If you ask me, why does the IMB exist? Why do we send missionaries? Why do people leave their their country and their their, their family and and their careers and, and, and go live somewhere in the world they've never even been? Because they know those people are dying lost and someone has to go tell them there's a solution to your greatest problem.
1: It's fascinating to me that when Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus about who he
0: is and why he has come. Jesus ends up telling Nicodemus a snake story. Nicodemus is struggling to understand. John 3 records it. Jesus said, You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, What? does an old man go back in his mother's room and be born again?
1: He just said, No, 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 that, that's not what I'm talking about. And then to help Nicodemus understand, Jesus actually
0: tells him a snake story, another one from the Old Testament. It was from the time of the wilderness wanderings when, when the Israelites, they'd been slaves in Egypt and God said, you know, I'm gonna, uh, Moses, you're going to lead them to the promised land. And, and yet along the way, the people in that generation, as in every generation, were sinning and rebelling against God. And so they end up out in the wilderness for a long time and waiting for a generation to die. And, but, it, but it got so bad at one point with just people just not doing what God said to do that the Lord brought judgment on them. And the judgment that he brought was in the form of deadly snakes, poisonous vipers that that came into the camps of the Israelites and they began to bite the people and people were dying. And the people seeing the consequences of their sin and rebellion against God, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. They began to, to cry out to God for mercy. They began to repent. And God, who is a merciful God, provided a solution. He said to the leader, Moses, he said, Moses, fashion a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole. And if anyone in the camp is bitten by one of these deadly snakes, if
1: they'll look at that serpent of bronze, they won't die. They'll live, they'll be okay. Jesus
0: references that to Nicodemus. And again, he's trying to help Nicodemus understand who he is and why he has come and and what Nicodemus' problem is and that Jesus is going to be the solution to that problem. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man
1: be lifted up that any who would look to him would have eternal life. They will not die, they will live. And he was lifted up on the cross where he died for your sins and my sins and the sin of the world.
0: And the Bible says if you believe that about Jesus, that, that, that his death, it was for you, and you're ready to trust in him, we call that faith, and you're, you're ready to turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus as your Savior, we, we call that Repentance. And you're ready to confess him as Lord because he is. The Bible says at that very moment, your greatest problem is solved. You're forgiven. You're adopted into God's family. And hell, separation from God is no longer your
1: eternal destiny. No, you will be welcomed into his kingdom. God has solved your greatest problem in Christ. In the good news of the gospel, there is a solution to the greatest problem in each of our lives and the greatest problem in the world. Several years ago, there were a couple of men who showed up in a
0: parking lot of a Baptist church one evening. It was a church like this, and since it was a Baptist church, and had a parking lot. It was unlike this uh, in the sense that that building and the parking lot probably fit in this room. <laughs> just a little church and a little town in the mountains. Uh, they'd come that evening because it was church visitation night. And so they got organized and they did what they'd come to do. They, they left the parking lot on foot just walking through the neighborhoods of the little town, knocking on doors, inviting people to church. At some point that evening, they, they climbed a steep hill and they made their way up to second house on the road. From the end. It was a little rental property at the address of 210 Province Street. Stepped up on the porch, knocked on the doors. A young man in his mid twenties came to the door. I don't know if they knew about his situation. It was a small town. You know how small towns go. Maybe they knew all about his situation. If they did, they'd known he was about two years past a divorce. He had three kids, all boys, he's raising them on his own. I I don't know if they knew any of that, but they knew enough. They knew people not in church need to be in church. They knew broken families need the Lord. And the greatest problem in every person's life, Jesus is a solution to.
1: So when my father came to the door, they invited him to church. He accepted their invitation. and Somehow the next Sunday managed to get three rowdy boys ready on his own. And he took us to church. We went back the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that, it soon became the pattern of our
0: family, and we found at that church the same thing I found when I pulled into the parking
1: lot here. We found a church family that welcomed us, and that loved us, and that shared the gospel with us.
0: Fast forward a few years, I guess I was four when we first started going to church, about four years later, there was another knock on our door. We're still living in that little rental house.
1: and Dad went to the door. Our pastor was standing there, Brother Allen. He was there because
0: Dad had invited him to come. My oldest brother had been asking questions about the gospel. Dad asked him, Pastor, if you have time, would you come by and talk to my boy? And so he did. He sat in the green chair in the corner of room, and we shared the gospel with my older brother. My younger brother and I, we sat on the floor and we listened in. Brother Allen got three for one that night. As we put our trust in Jesus, we're saved. Baptized together just a few weeks later in the Baptist city, of the Little First Baptist Church of Jellicoe, Tennessee. I can't tell you how thankful I am for a couple men who cared enough about their neighbors to knock on our door and invite our family to church. How thankful I am for for a pastor who, like your pastor, it was his greatest joy to share with someone how to be saved. How grateful I am for a church that knew why it was there. And how grateful I am to be in a church like that today. I don't think you'd have to go far out of the parking lot here to find a lost man or woman, boy or girl, a broken family, someone still carrying the greatest
1: problem, to which you know the solution Get on a plane with us at the IMB. We'll show you billions of people like that. And that's why you're here. The world has a problem. But you know the solution. It's the gospel. And God has put you here to share it. Don't forget that. Don't forget why you're here. Let me invite you to stand. we come this morning to a time of
0: commitment, it might be that as you've reflected upon what the Bible says here in the book of Romans, that you've come to realize you're still carrying around your greatest problem because you've not yet put your trust in Jesus and had that problem solved, but you're ready today. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song. There'll be some spiritual leaders in the church who'll be standing here and And if you're ready to make that commitment, I I want to invite you to step out, come forward, share that news with us. Let us celebrate with you. Maybe you have questions. What what, what does that take? What do I need to do? They can answer those questions. That's why they're here. Maybe you're here today and you've already made that commitment, but, but you're ready to be a part of a church family that knows why it's here. I know they'd love to talk with you about what that would look like for you to be a part of
1: First Baptist Church. Or maybe today, You sense the Lord calling you to give your whole
0: life to addressing the world's greatest problem. You sense a call on your life to ministry. You may or may not know specifically what the Lord is leading you to do. You may sense a call in your life to missions. You're ready to go to those who will never hear unless a missionary goes. I'd love to talk with you about that. However God is dealing with you in these moments, it's it's an invitation that, that the church is extending, but it's not our invitation. It's not
1: my invitation. The Lord is one who invites. Respond to him and come share it with us as we sing.